This is Paul Nobles from Eat Perform, and once again, I am here with Dr. Susan Kleiner. Um, Susan, do you want to walk people through, you know, where they can find you and, and, you know, specifically the topic of performance nutrition, which is what we're going to really focus on for these next three episodes? Yeah, well, that's been my calling card for, oh, nearly 40 years. So <clears throat> I love this topic. Thanks, Paul. You can find me at drsusankleiner.com or dressklineer.com. Either one gets to my website where you can read about me. You can find my books, uh, The New Power Eating, The Good Mood Diet, uh, all sorts of other information, other, other places I've published and can be listened to. And I'm Paul Nobles. I... Uh... I'm the co-founder of Eat Reform, and if you think you need, you know, coaching for physique, performance, you know, really kind of, kind of anything like that, you can just go to www.eatperform.com. And what's nice about it is that it's set up for you to actually have a conversation with an actual Eat Reform coach. And so feel free to ask them any question that you have, because the reason why we set it up this way is so that, you know, people aren't kind of guessing as to what the program is because they see like a lot of these great transformations on Facebook. But, you know, other than that, they might not have all the details. So coaches can actually walk you through a lot of those details with a high level of specifics of what you're actually, what's actually going to happen. Right. Okay. So, we um, got a request to do a series of podcasts on performance nutrition. And so what we're going to walk through here is just the kind of one-on-one level of why performance nutrition is important, why um, you exercise to get better at exercise, um, not to burn off cheesecake from the night previous. I was listening to a podcast um, from the, the ladies that started soul cycle. Uh-huh. And, um, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a really cool story. I really liked it, but man, there was so much, uh, earn your food discussion, which was, uh, which was not good in my view. Not and so, good. And so we're going to walk through why, right. And then, you know, inevitably, whenever you're talking about performance nutrition, it is going to come down to some level of fat loss, weight loss, but in reality, um, you know, weight doesn't make as big of a factor as a lot of people like to believe it does, right? So, you know, one thing that you'll hear a lot is I don't have push up or pull ups, so I need to lose 15 pounds. <laughs> there, there is a gal at my gym, no joke. She's 250 pounds, can bang out five strict pull-ups. So, you know, if she can do five strict pull-ups, maybe you going from 150 to 135 isn't the reason why you don't have pull-ups, right? See this a lot in weight-restricted sports. We were actually having a discussion with this um, because one of the ladies that we have featured is an Olympic lifter. And I think this is a real problem within like, MMA, this is a real problem in like jujitsu, um, Olympic lifting, where people 
you know, especially hobbyists do these things and they like to be weight restricted as a result, right? So it's kind of like an incentive to diet more, right? And the problem that you run into, and I think this is actually, you know, one of the things that sort of um, is an issue for USA weightlifting, right? Um, because there's a lot of pressure as an example, and we actually did as good as we've done in 40 years right. um, at the Olympics. Right, this right, year. right. It was amazing. Um, but even, <laughs> even being amazing, right, um, the U.S. lifters are often put into a weight class usually lower than they might feel comfortable with, right? Um, and it often does kind of break a lot of eggs to make a really small omelet, right? And, you know, th this is a big topic of discussion in the MMA world. Right? right, where Joe Rogan talks about it on his podcast a lot, that these weight um, classes are harming these these you know violent athletes. You know, because the last thing you want to do is lose twenty five pounds and then the very next day um, get hit in the face. <laughs> you know, and so if you look at some of you know the Manny Pacquiao's of the world or the Floyd Mayweather's of the world I don't I, I can't think of necessarily um many of the MMA fighters but I think Conor McGregor fits this mold a little bit where they're naturally that size right and you know they've sort of maxed out the limits of what their genetic potential is and so when you would look at um, well, actually, this came up with Simone Biles. <clears throat> Simone Biles has been a really big advocate that a lot of the, the old way of thinking, right, which still, by the way, penetrates gymnastics, um, is that the less food, the better, right? And, you know, that really isn't true. You know, the because she, she, once she started to eat an appropriate amount of food, she did not gain weight. Um, but it does allow for your body to work more similar to the way that it, it wants to work, right? And so can you give kind of some basic general rules as to, you know, when the focus on performance nutrition makes a big difference? So yeah, and and I just have to tell an, an oldie but goodie story. This is from a long time ago and only your listeners who are avid baseball history fans probably by now or or have been watching baseball for 50 or 60 years will remember this story. Uh, when I started in sports nutrition, <clears throat> we recognized that a sports nutritionist, a card-carrying sports nutritionist, was the person who really understood weight loss and weight gain in, in really functional detail. And a story went around that uh, about Carl Yastrzemski. So Carl Yastrzemski was a great home run hitter who was well known for his belly. And uh, the team hired a, a dietitian, apparently, or maybe not. I mean, we, 
actually within the story, it, it isn't really said who was working with him <clears throat> or was it the coach who wanted him to lose 20 plus pounds, feeling that it would make him a better runner. And, and that, you know, every hit isn't a, run, a home run. So let's also try and make him a better runner. So he lost the 20 pounds and he wasn't hitting as many home runs anymore because his, his sort of body balance um, was baked in over many, many, many years. And when he lost the 20 pounds, it changed enough things in, in you know, in him um, physically and dynamically that he just couldn't hit the ball in the same way. And it's not necessarily the weight behind the ball, it's the balance and everything else structurally <clears throat> that a, a sort of a biomechanist would understand. And, and then he never became a better runner because he just wasn't a runner. <laughs> he, he, was a, he was an HR guy, that was it. So, so it just is part of the story that what we think intuitively is not always the best for the outcome and that we must individualize to the athlete. Um, and it isn't, there aren't, there are some generalizations to a sport when you're working in general with public recommendations. But when you're starting to get to serious goals and serious athletic performance, it's highly individualized. So in general, in general terms, when we think about weight, uh, body weight to power ratios. Um, are you are you carrying your body weight to somewhere else within a competitive event? And is it an advantage to have a higher power to weight ratio? Yes, always, but not if it puts your body at a disadvantage functionally. Sometimes that works, and this is what you hear from many retired female runners in particular, is that they at some point in their very early running career followed advice to lose weight. When they did, their season soared. They did amazing because they had this initial advantage of a power to weight ratio added on top of a gifted runner, genetically gifted, and likely had uh, some very good coaching as far as their run coaching. And that lasted for them for one season, maybe two. And then it starts to wane. But their only tool in the toolbox that they've been given, either from the same coach or that they learned themselves, was to lose weight again. And so now they get on this roller coaster ride of continuing to lose weight. And the only way they're losing weight is by tremendously underfueling their body. They're not fueling their body enough for recovery. And now the injuries start to set in. And so listening to the person in the first year or even two years of this scenario gives you the information that this is the smartest tactic you could ever have. Listening to the retired female athlete whose career was cut short because of injury upon injury, 
really trace back to that initial underfueling and then over time it is not a smart strategy unless you want to be a flash in the pan yeah and so when we look at it and, and i'm i'm going to say this um and a lot of people are going to go oh my window's closed you know um if <laughs> there's any advice that susan and i would give to um young people is get active early right and find something that you really really care about it's interesting i think i've talked to you a little bit about pickleball you know my oh, wife yeah. and i are just <laughs> we're just obsessed about it right now but what's interesting <clears throat> is is there's a lot of young people starting you know and it's so funny because we've been playing since april and then these young people there was one kid who came out and uh, he was playing with us the first time and he was already pretty good. You know, he just had natural talent. Literally every time I've been there since then, he's there, you yeah. know. And so he's just really, really likes it. And, and I think that if you're a parent or a coach or something of this nature, one of the worst things that you can do is to take away the fun. Like if you think about the, the food piece of it, you know, eating less food is kind of miserable, right? And so why not allow the activity to kind of express its full self with more food, right? Now, we'll say there's a lot of pressure, um, especially when you're younger, especially if you're a woman, Um to maintain a certain weight or something of this nature. And what's interesting is we have two clients, both are late teens, right? One is my daughter and the other is a, um, a division one water polo person. In general, uh, we do not work with, you know, anyone under 20, you know, I mean, if they're over 18, we'll make special exceptions. The majority of the time, those special exceptions are that they have to be on a performance diet. So this is what's interesting. So my daughter is training to be a firefighter and she had to carry a 45 pound pack in under 15 minutes. Um, and very quickly, once we started giving her the program, like her whole life changed, you know, she just naturally was not eating a lot right? Um, at certain times of the day and then other times, you know, she was fine. You know, wasn't necessarily concerned about weight, but, you know, um, all young girls at that point are a little bit of conscious of how they look in the mirror or whatever. And I think boys are too, right? Like you're, you're eventually trying to find a, a mate or make yourself attractive in one, one way, shape or form. And what what happened in both of these cases, so in the case of the Division One water polo person, um, it took her a while to get going because it was summer and she had a lot of things going. But once she started training for water polo, it was unreal. You know, she went over 3,000 calories, um, like, almost immediately. And then my daughter is just under 3,000 calories um, and stayed really active. Uh, within three to four weeks, she'd hit that goal. 
Um, and she, you know, she's carrying a 45 pound pack and she's only 140 pounds, you know? And so if there's any one thing that I would say to you as a parent is really encourage your kids to get better at the exercise with food. Okay. And I would like to give some specifics so that even if you're an aging athlete, you know, I know a lot of us have been sort of tempted to go into some athletic pursuit or something of this nature based on managing our weight, which is fine, right? Susan and I do that, you know, that's not abnormal, but the good majority of time, you want to try and get better at exercise. That's why you do it. This is why I think some things like boot camps and stuff like this, where it's just kind of hard to love. You can Although get, some people really love them. So <laughs> I know, but but I wonder about their relationship with pain. You know what I mean? Well, um, you know, I think it depends on the trainer. You know, it's all about yes. attitude. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. we were talking about soul cycle, right? And yeah. they took a they took a an idea. She actually talked about that, that you know. A lot of the, lot of the, um, a lot of the trainers that she was working with along the way just really didn't bring a lot to the table. And I think, like when you look at Peloton and you look at, you know, SoulCycle and, and CrossFit as an example, what you see is like a energy around those types of movements. Right. That. Um, it's your community. Is, it's infectious, and yeah, it, it ends up becoming your community, and so. Even though, you know, because a lot of people will say, you know, don't you regret not pursuing fitness, you know, your, your whole life? And the answer is no. Of course, I do not regret it. You know, the, you only know what you know when you know it. And so <laughs> the fact that, you know, I found it eventually, I think is worthwhile. I think the problem is, and I know that this is a, hip, a little hypocritical on my side because there is an element of look and feel that changed drastically, you know. But what I, if you ask me what I do regret, this is it. That I didn't take it longer and I didn't do it like a lot of the eat perform way is it how I did it, right? I was able to piece it together after the fact, but as an example, my lowest weight was 149 and a half. There was no way that was ever going to be sustainable without extreme exercise. And I mean, there was, I was still, you know, I, I was at, I sat at 155 for a long time. Um, and I only went down to 2000 calories um, for about two weeks to get to that 149 and a half. So having a good amount of calories really helped that. Well, I think um, that, I think Paul, one of the, one of the really important things when you talk about, you know, our, you know, our history doesn't matter. It's in the past, but people who are raising families now or at any, wherever they are in their lives, there is this fascinating research that has looked at sort of physical movement over, you know, a life cycle and, and how that relates to energy utilization. 
And so we know that babies through toddlers play like nearly all day long. I, that's what they do, right? They are always moving, moving and they are playing. Their play is discovery, their play is education, their play is challenge, physically, uh, developmental, but they are playing. And we also know that once we hit about middle school age, that the amount of play that we do, fun play, markedly reduces. And by the time you are, you are like out of college, pretty much we're down to nearly zero. And so that also reflects a level of energy utilization in a day that is not a concerted effort to be burning calories to reach a certain goal. It is purely joy. And what we have done is we've removed the joy from movement. We have separated those. And now as adults, we look at movement as a required obligation to keep ourselves either on a health track or a sport track or whatever track we're on to accomplish goals and not for the sake of the joy of the movement itself. And that affects both just, you know, energy utilization, but mental health as well and development. And so I say, um, yes. So, so then the, other, the flip side of this is if you aren't eating, you don't have the energy to do all of this joyful movement. And we have also tracked women in particular when they're becoming you know low in iron when they're be when uh youth athletes are low in vitamin d so kind of as a vitamin d not so much but certainly iron and other nutrient levels when you're not frankly deficient but marginally low we can track that you sit on the couch more and when you're well nourished, you move more, you're up and around. And so, so that's kind of a, of a surrogate for nutrition in general and eating and fueling in general. And so if you sit more when you're not fueled and you can get up and play more and enjoy yourself more when you're well fueled, I think that's the foundation of wellness. No, I agree. I think that, you know, just to, to finish this um portion of the podcast be careful about creating these ultimatums with yourself that are based on misery right and so you know in the next couple podcasts we're going to really talk a little bit more about not just not just tapping into the joy right um but really starting to get to some specifics because what i think happens for a lot of people is you know, they tie the miserable piece to the food piece, right? And then the thing that used to be joyful, like you were talking about with the retired numbers, now is miserable, right? You know, and so it's important that we know the specifics in this regard and then why you're doing it. And so we're going to get into some of the specifics. And then what we'll do in the last podcast is going to walk through 
kind of the differences between maybe a cardio pursuit and a weightlifting pursuit. So be on the lookout for those and we'll talk to you later.